Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. My guest this week is someone uh, who is a longtime colleague of mine at Sports Illustrated, and absolutely one of the best colleagues that any of us there had. That is Tom Verducci. He is a longtime senior writer for Sports Illustrated, covering baseball, as well as a color analyst and a field reporter for Fox Sports coverage of Major League Baseball. Tom Verducci, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. And Tom, uh, I'll let people behind the scenes. Thank you for staying through my, this is now my third intro, I believe, of this uh, podcast. We'll see if we can make it work on this one. Um, Tom, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because the winter meetings are coming up. You are going to be in Las Vegas for them. And so let's start with there because I think uh, a lot of people who listen to this podcast would be interested in how, how these things are covered. So first off, um, given so many media organizations now that will be there, what how do reporters approach covering this, and is there any way to get um, to beat people on news or to get some kind of exclusivity? Well, it's a great place for reporting because you do have as many baseball people as you'll ever see underneath one roof at the same time, whether it's front office people, reporters, and especially agents who tend to, to run the agenda. Um, so it's great that you can get people physically in one place. And I say physically, I almost have to put that in quotation marks because you don't see a lot of the people um because of technology a lot is done via cell phone now and you know i know when i first started back in the mid 80s my first winter meetings was at san diego and that was back when you literally had to see somebody and that's why there was a lot of trolling in the lobbies or in that case that year i remember we hung out by the pool in the back that's where the baseball people were hanging out to run into other people um so that wasn't a bad gig when you think about it hanging out by a pool in san diego in december um at a slower pace obviously and now it seems like there is a lot of news that goes on the, the, just the baseball calendar is a little slower not a lot of big free agents have signed and usually don't sign prior to the winter meetings so you do tend to get some news out of there but the way you get the news has definitely changed because a lot of the people who are there from the clubs you'll see them walk through the lobby to check into the hotel and you'll see them walking to check out and in between, they pretty much don't leave their suites. I mean, they essentially set up a war room and pull out all their laptops and computer power and, you know, set up a bunker-type atmosphere, and they conduct meetings there and uh, obviously a lot of phone calls. So they're really out of your eye line if you're a reporter at the meeting. So you try to get some other people, or maybe you catch them going out to dinner or coming back from lunch. But it's certainly different in terms of the amount of personal time you can spend with people at the meetings. Tom, in other sports, uh, organizations are pretty, they, they sort of keep either assistant coaches or assistant organization people pretty tight when it comes to talking to the press. There's usually a singular voice, the general manager or the CEO or the president. At the winter meetings, is that similar? Or if you are especially a reporter like you who knows a lot of people in the game, you know, can you talk to the assistant GM or can you talk to the uh, person who's in charge of research and development? What, what kind of, what kind of access do you get, I guess, to the, to the people who are below the front facing general manager types? There's some access and it tends to vary by organizations. Some keep much tighter ship than others in terms of, you know, what some of the, uh, say, the non-decision makers, uh, will it be able to be available to uh, reporters? Um, you know, others are a little more free with information. Um, but I, I think a lot of the information is turned by the agents. Hmm. I think the agents have really taken over the winter meetings more so than the clubs. I think if it were up to the clubs, they'd love to have no leaks of information. They'd like everything to be done 
you know, below the surface. And then, hey, we have an announcement to make. And actually, that used to happen at the winter meeting. It sounds quaint now to think about this, but they would post the sign that, hey, there's going to be an announcement in the press room. Uh, for instance, the Padres and the Blue Jays will be the teams involved in the press conference. And no one knew what it was about. <laughs> so when that actually happened and the Blue Jays and, and Padres announced a trade that involved Joe Carter, Fred McGriff, Robbie Alomar, huge trade, there were literally gasps in the room because no one had any idea that that was going down. And the notion of a trade like that happening now, I mean, maybe it's a small trade it might happen, but a blockbuster trade to be broken at the podium in a press conference room, it just doesn't happen. Essentially, a lot gets out there, a lot of it coming from the agents prior to the actual announcement of a deal. And teams are much more careful about announcing deals now. Everybody has to be notified. People have to get medicals. So there's a little bit of a, more, a lag time now between the settlement of a deal and the actual announcement. And in that lag time, word gets out 99.9% of the time. Tom, when it comes to like the top agents in the sport, or at least the agents who are going to represent some of these prominent free agents, uh, whatever, the Scott Boris types, are do, do they set up some kind of camp at the winter meetings? Uh, will they hold their own press conferences or State of the Union's? Or is it really a case of, um, you know, you have to have a pre-existing relationship with these people to get that kind of information? No, I think it's on an as-needed basis, Richard. And I say as-needed according to the needs of the agent, (laughs) not the reporters. Um, You can pretty much bet that there's going to be one point during these meetings in Las Vegas where Scott Boris will casually walk through the lobby, and it's not an accident. He wants something out there. He wants to create a headline, create a market, create a story, whatever it is. Um, It happens every year, and there'll just be an entire scrum of reporters around him. He's very entertaining. You know, he has a very creative and and colorful way uh, of getting his points out there. And he's doing his service for his client. Um, But that's going to happen once at the winter meetings. It always does. Other agents, maybe, you know, not so high profile, will still find a way to get their stories out there. Maybe not in such a group setting as Scott does. But, uh, yeah, I I think they will do things. If it's a slow market for a player, they want to create it. Um, Sometimes they want to create some pressure on teams to let the reporters know, whether it's a select few or just one reporter, that one team is really close on a deal to try to get other teams to to up the ante. So, again, I I think they – Speaking of the agents, I think they run the agenda of meetings and, you know, they'll get out there what they want to get out there on their terms. Tom, do you expect the top guys, um, the Bryce Harpers, Manny Machados, Patrick Corbin, uh, Nathan Avoldi types, do you expect them to sign during these winter meetings or is that something that would, in your opinion, happen after the meetings uh, conclude? Yeah, it depends who it is. Patrick Corbin, I get the sense, will sign pretty quickly. I I think he was out doing a tour of teams very quickly. I think the market is pretty much known. I think he's around a U Darvish type of contract, maybe a little bit more because he's younger. Um, So I think in terms of the suitors and the price tag, it's pretty much known, I think, where all that's going to fall. So it's just up to him to make a decision. That could happen, certainly, and maybe before the meetings, but at the meetings, that looks like it might happen. The Machado-Harper ones are really interesting. My personal belief is that Bryce Harper will not sign until after Manny Machado signs. I think Scott Boris wants to make Bryce Harper the highest-paid player in the history of the game. 
whether that's of average annual value to surpass Zach Ranky, say 35 million plus per year, or total value of a contract, which is Giancarlo Stanton with 326 million. He'll surpass one or both of those milestones. But I think he wants to see what Machado gets because Machado might be in that same tax neighborhood. So I don't think that Bryce wants to sign and then Machado comes behind him and signs one for a dollar more than what Bryce Harper got. It may sound silly, but, you know, listen, Bryce Harper, and I've been saying this since he was 16 and I did the story in SI, he was on the cover. Yep. Everything has been pointing to this free agent market. You know, getting out of high school with a GED after a sophomore year, going to play junior college for a year to become draft eligible, really never considering an extension from the Washington Nationals. It was all about getting him on the market at this age, you know, with his prime years up for free agent bidding. And the greatest leverage that I've seen, um, it's the greatest leverage I've seen since Alex Rodriguez, who was also 26 when he was a free agent. And if you remember that, the meetings were in Dallas. And of course, they had a press conference at the end of those meetings. Uh, Tom Hicks, the Rangers owner was there, Scott Boris, Alex Rodriguez. That was a case, though, I think, Richard, where you know, you wanted to have the press conference at the meetings. Now you can have a press conference in the city. You can have it televised no matter when or where it is. But I think Scott liked the fact that they were able to, you know, lift the curtain on that contract at the winter meetings. Could happen in Vegas with Bryce because he lives there. But I get the sense that it's going to be a little slower play. Again, I think Machado will drop first, probably to Philadelphia. Uh, and then Bryce a little bit later. Tom, I know how much you love writing. Um, uh, it's the reason you are still writing, in fact. So I wonder when you are attending one of these winter meetings and you no longer work for a newspaper, and quite frankly, you, you're no one in Sports Illustrated is going to sort of say, Tom, you know, you got a file at this time, uh, at this moment. It's a digital website, and you, given your years of seniority, rightfully sort of have a little flexibility as to when you want to write. Do you miss... Um, maybe not miss is not the right word, but is, is this a different experience for you now where you're at the winter meetings, you're talking to people, you're observing stuff, but you do not have the pressure of deadlines that other writers there do. Yeah, it's definitely different. Um, you know, for me also, I have still have the sort of the energy that comes from being on air at MLB That's network. During right. mid meetings. I mean, we'll have a big presence there. I'll be on each day, uh, whether it's, you know, interviewing managers, general managers, uh, analysis on trades, breakdowns on players. That's to me really kind of cool because, you know, once the word gets out there that somebody signs, you know, the next thing is, well, what does it mean? You know, who is this guy? What does he mean for the team? What's their next move? What's it mean for the other team that lost the player? There's just so many layers to look at some of these transactions that go on that it's really cool to be able to do all of that in real time for MLB Network. And then for the magazine, writing each day, you know, it's always interesting to find, and hard <laughs> as well, to find a take that hasn't already been covered in the previous 24 hours. And I, that's what I like. I like that challenge of going below the surface to say, hey, listen, I know you heard about this signing yesterday. You know the parameters of the deal. You know every dollar, how it breaks down year by year. But maybe you didn't know this about the player, or this is what it means for this team, or this is what they need to do next. Um, you know, that's still fun to do. And I think there's a big, still a big appetite for baseball when it comes to the winter news in terms of perspective. Yeah. And I, I should have, I apologize again. Um, Tom Verducci also is a prominent person at MLB network. 
I'm sure Lorraine Fisher, PR of MLB.com, will not be happy <laughs> that I did not give that some love at the intro, but I'll give it now. And again, Tom will be on uh, nightly or, or daily whenever MLB Network's coverage is. And so you can obviously check him out there as well. Um, Tom, I want to, uh, one of the things I definitely want to ask you about or wanted to ask you about when I, uh, when you agreed to come on was long form feature writing. That is where you, I think have made, um, uh, you're, it's such a cliche, but sort of, you know, you've made your bones on that in the last 20 years in terms, I think being the preeminent long form profile writer when it comes to the subject of baseball. And I wonder just how you see it today in 2018 long form still exists and sports illustrated obviously still does some great profiles but the world sort of changed on all of us where in the 1990s when you were first hired by si um the magazine was different it was bigger i think the consumption of long form uh sports stuff was probably greater than it is today especially given the advent of just short form things and so where do you stand on long form. I imagine you still love doing it. I'm sure you still love uh, the profiles that you write. Do you feel that they still have the same impact? Do you do you worry at all that, you know, 100 years from now, our great-great-grandkids are not going to be consuming this the way we did? Well, I still love it, as you mentioned there. Um, I do think there's less of an impact simply because people just don't read as much. Uh, and they do. There are a couple of things here, Richard. Number one, just I think our brains, especially younger people, have been trained that, you know, they want to consume things quickly rather than kind of sit down and relax with something such as a, an SI. Um, a lot a lot of people now get their information or entertainment from video more so than the written word. So, you know, I'm not being ignorant of those changes. Um, but I also think there's so much information out there that sometimes it can be overwhelming. I mean, there's a lot of great baseball writing out there on a daily basis. Yep. Not necessarily long-form journalism, but if you're a baseball fan or a fan of any sport, man, you have so much good stuff to choose from. It's almost overwhelming. So, you know, the long-form can get lost because you've already read so much about certain things that maybe the thirst for more isn't there because it's stated on an everyday basis. But I personally like to believe that that actually enhances the value. Even if the impact is a little less, I think the value of long form is really important because we do live in a minute-by-minute, day-by-day society. And sometimes, you know, you do need to step back and put things into perspective. That's what I still enjoy doing. But I still think the most important thing, Richard, is that people want to hear good stories well told. No matter what the format is, you know, that could be a documentary, it could, you know, could be a, a feature film, especially it could be a long form baseball feature on somebody or some trend in the game. And I, I still think that will never go away. And again, I think maybe the appetite is a little bit less for it, but um, there will still be an appetite. There still is now for those kinds of stories. I mean, I did a story last year, I think it was last year, on the reemergence of the curveball in baseball. And we actually put it on the cover of the magazine, and it was a close-up of Lance McCuller holding a ball with his, his curveball grip. You know, it was kind of a dramatic cover. I mean, you couldn't tell who it was because it was such a tight shot. But it made you stop and think, or at least that was my objective, hmm. to say, hey, there is something going on here. Baseball is changing a little bit here. And you know, to get above, you know, 30,000 feet and take a look at the game, but still have some granular details in there. 
I, I think the demand for that kind of stuff will never go away. And again, and maybe it, it's lost its impact a little bit because it's just choice out there, but I still think it's super important. And as far as SI goes, Richard, I, I remember when I first got to the magazine 25 plus years ago and you know, we were chasing, uh, say, the hot team on a weekly basis. And, you know, you go cover, you know, I'll go out to uh, cover the Atlanta Braves for a few days, midweek, early week, and just hope they didn't go in the tank by Sunday when my story <laughs> had to be in. Right. You know, and then hope that they stay hot for the next two days before the story comes out. Well, we're not doing that anymore at the magazine. And that's actually a good thing, I believe, because, you know, that as I said, those kind of short-term stories are, are covered extremely well in great detail by so many different outlets now that I think our strength now really is almost like the New Yorker, you know, of really having stuff that's maybe longer, a better quality. Uh, you know, I don't know about the audience size, but I think we're giving them something that's really well-crafted. Uh, not to say the other stories weren't, but there were more of the moment type stories. And I think that the bottom line for us, for anybody now is, you got to go find the good stories because, again, people love good stories that are well told. That's well said, Tom. And I, the one thing where I think both of us agree is this: there's never been a better time for baseball writing. If you want to sort of, um, if you want to consider like the depth and number uh, in terms of numbers, the quality of baseball writing, quality of baseball writers out there. In my opinion, that's never been higher. So that's a good thing, and we'll see. Um, We'll see sort of where long form goes. It, I, I am curious, Tom, um, because you, you deal with both of the you deal with athletes on both sides, broadcast and the and the sort of quote unquote print digital side. How do players react these days when you tell them that you want to do a written profile, let's say versus a, a video piece? Do you find that um, whether it's a you know like a Bryce Harper type or something like that, are 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 players still excited when you say that you want to do a Sports Illustrated cover story versus say? We're going to do a five or 10 minute feature on Fox. I think they're still excited. Uh, I think maybe not as excited as they were when I first got to the magazine, because not to say that being on the cover of SI is not, you know, I think still pretty darn cool for yep. guys. And I still think they get a kick at it, but I mean, that was, that was it. I mean, that was important. I had players, who really didn't want to do a story unless they were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. <laughs> right. They really wanted to be on the cover. It meant a lot to them. Um, and again, it's still there, but maybe not quite as much because, let's face it, a lot of them grew up with ESPN television being the dominant media more so than SI, as opposed to when I first got to the magazine. That generation you know, grew up with SI being the, the top of the mountain. So that has changed. There's no doubt about that. But as far as the cooperation that I get personally from people, whether it's a TV piece or a magazine piece, I really don't see a difference. I think the only difference might be, in general, it's harder to get time from players now, as much time. You know, as you know, with SI, we always want to get as much time, probably more than a player wants, as we can with players to, you know, to go that extra yard, to go the extra layer. Uh, it's harder and harder. These players have so many agents and PR reps and, you know, endorsement people, just more layers to get to the heart of who the player is. And the baseball season, as you know, is so long anyway, there's a lot of demands on their time on a daily basis. That's the one thing I've noticed. It's hard to get a guy to say, okay, I'll give you an entire day or, you know, a couple of days, you know, we'll just hang out for a few days. It still happens, don't get me wrong, but it's a little harder than it was 25 years ago. Tom, there are a lot of young people who listen to this podcast, and I, I consider you one of the pioneers in terms of being able to morph and navigate between 
broadcast roles and writing roles. You certainly weren't the first. You know, people like Will McDonough did this long before you. But you have done it at essentially the highest levels on both sides that you can do. Senior writer, Sports Illustrated, and an analyst for MLB Network and Fox. You know, you called the World Series as an analyst, which uh, – you know, if you would have told somebody that 60 years ago that a writer was going to call the World Series, they would have thought your head was spinning. So I wonder, um, what advice would you give to young people who want to navigate between these different worlds and want a multimedia career? Because the um, the skill sets are certainly different, but obviously the more stuff you can do, the more likely you can work in this business for a long time. Right. It's exactly true. I mean, the word I always start with is passion. I mean, you really have to have a passion for it. You can't be lukewarm or even liking it. You really have to love what you do, no matter what medium you're working in. Um, you have to have a tremendous amount of curiosity. You know, that's what drives me. I always want to, as much as I love baseball, I want to keep learning as much as I can about it. I feel like the more I learn about it, the more I find out what I don't know about the game. Uh, that's a great motivator. Um, but for me, I just always starting out, I just wanted to write. I never even thought about doing something, uh, in television. It just kind of evolved as, as the world changed and the, and the media landscape changed. Um, but I think the principles are still the same. Um, you know, there's no delete key on TV though. And there's no second draft or third draft, (laughs) but I I think it's, you know, what I said about passion and curiosity certainly come into play. And I think it's the way you treat people as well. I mean, a lot of what we do, even though the technology has really changed a ton, a lot hasn't changed in terms of how we really operate on the currency of trust. You know, Roger Angel said it best. You know, his job was really to get people to bear their lives to him. You know, he always was drawn to the people who were very good communicators, who talked, who revealed themselves. Part of that as a writer is getting people comfortable with you, that they can trust you, that they can share their lives and their stories that maybe they don't share on an everyday basis. And you know, it's hard for me to tell somebody how to do that, but it's something you have to be aware of, and hopefully it comes to somebody naturally. Um, but I do think it's um, it comes down to really relationships that you have with people and working at those. The skill sets individually in terms of, you know, writing a story, the structure of a story, uh, a script, you know, the mechanics of being on air. You can learn all those things in terms of those skill sets, but I, I think the passion and the respect that you show to people is something that you better have inside of you to make it in this business because it's a great business, but as you know, Richard, it's so competitive. There's so many talented people out there um, that trying to do this job halfway, you're just not going to make it. Tom, um, my colleagues at The Athletic, Ken Rosenthal and Jason Stark, are very prominent on social media the majority of the well-known baseball writers, certainly, or, or multimedia types in the U.S., Joel Sherman types, John Heyman, are, uh, at least have a, a very big presence on Twitter. Maybe they're on you know, Facebook and Instagram and other places. I just know they happen to be on Twitter. You are famously, if that's the right word, not on social media, not on Twitter. You've made that decision, and that's kind of a very interesting decision to me in 2018. First, it just means, Tom, you once again are the smartest person out there. And secondly, <laughs> uh, but it's interesting because, you know, as you know, um, so many organizations want their people on social media, and you can understand why. It's publicity for the product. It's a way to get your words out there to places that normally you would not get to. But you've made a decision. You've made a, spe- a specific decision not to be part of that world, and I wonder why. 
Well, it's probably for all the people who are on it who tell me, man, I wish I were you or not on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, I guess it's just a personal decision for me. I just think it, I'm not comfortable with that idea about a lot of things that it plays well to, um, you know, especially things like snark and self-promotion and things like that. I, I just don't have an interest in that. I, I'd much rather prefer that it be about the work that I do rather than about me personally. And listen, I write for, you know, the largest sports magazine in the country. I'm on MLB Network. I'm on Fox. I write for SI.com, you know, producing a lot of things out there. So it's not as if, you know, people want to read me or hear from me. There's not (laughs) options to find them. And, you know, again, I do things as a feature writer and as broadcaster, as an analyst that, you know, it's probably, I like to think, has some craft involved in producing that kind of work. And, you know, social media tends to be more of the microwave variety and getting stuff out there quickly and maybe things that you haven't really thought all the way through. And um, I don't know, I guess that I'm giving you a long answer. And the short answer would be that it just, does, I don't feel like it suits my comfort level. I pre- Listen, that's an honest answer, and I, I appreciate that very much. And again, I think you, you've probably figured out something that all of us can figure out. Um, all right, a couple more here, Tom, and then um, then I'll let you go. And these are some more issue-oriented uh, stuff, but I'm really fascinated to hear your take on this. It's very clear, Tom, as you've seen from the recent press conferences and partnerships, that Major League Baseball is is getting itself involved in real formal ways when it comes to sports gambling. We've seen the decision federally uh, that's going to open up um, states to legalize sports gambling and whatever it is now, eight states, and it's going to be more. But MLB has has sort of put its line down and said that we want to be part of this world. And from talking to um, uh, people in the industry, Tom, baseball is kind of an incredible sport for gamblers in that you can, because the game has a a little bit more of a slower pace – People will be able to bet um, pitch to pitch at a certain point when the technology is there, uh, inning to inning. You know, the the amount of sort of proposition bets in the sport is sort of infinite and incredible. So I wonder um, if you can take a top-down view for me. How do you view the impact of uh, legalized sports gambling on Major League Baseball? Well, you make a good point. I mean, in terms of opportunities to place a bet, you know, baseball could be – you know, to take a bad analogy, a gold mine. You're talking about 2,340 games per year, you know, an average of about 300 pitches per game. And that's a lot of opportunities with the time in between, you know, with the way technology is now um, to have people place bets in, in, on lots of different things. Listen, if you go back to the 40s and 50s and you were sitting at Ebbets Field or Yankee Stadium, you know, that's how people were watching the game back then in the stands. You know, they were betting amongst each other on what the outcome of that at bat was going to be or the next pitch, whether it would be a foul ball and out, a base hit. Um, you know, now with technology, you can literally have it internationally in terms of um, people able to play, place bets on what's going to happen next in a baseball game. Um, so, yeah, I think there's an opportunity there. You've seen baseball move pretty quickly along with a couple of other leagues so far to try to get their arms around this so it's not the Wild West and also so they can carve out you know, their own take of the pie here. And I think it's smart. And I think you're going to see things change. I think you're going to see it possibly even be part of broadcasts, uh, where it seems to be taboo all these years to even talk about such things. Um, I, I think that that taboo is going away now, especially now with baseball having its own official gaming partner. So 
I'm not sure we know where it's going to go and how fast it's going to get there, but uh, I do think it's going to create a, a real good opportunity for baseball because, listen, if you if you know that polls will show this, that if you place a bet on something, you're more likely to watch the event and you're more engaged in the event. You have something personally riding on the outcome of the game. So, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, personally, I wouldn't want to see it really become like a, the game itself broadcast wise, become all about the betting aspect of it. Um, but again, I think if the baseball handles this well enough, goes slowly enough, I think it could be a good thing for the game. I mean, it could also open the door one day for a team in Las Vegas. Now, you can question whether that market would support 81 home dates a year. Um, you know, it tends to be more of an event city than, you know, say the, the day-to-day aspect of a baseball schedule. But I think it opens up a lot of possibilities for baseball and where they go from here. Tom, uh, I love this because this literally just broke as we're taping this podcast. So I, I'm going to pretend I'm like uh... – uh, Brian Kenny, or another host of the MLB Network. Uh, multiple places have reported that Patrick Corbin has just signed with the Nationals for a multi-year deal. What's what's off the top of your head? What's your what's your immediate thought on that? Yeah, well, I did think he'd be the first big guy to sign. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> yeah, but I, but wasn't sure it was Nationals. You know, the Yankees had been the front runner because he grew up in upstate New York as a Yankee fan, but. Um, you know, it's, I think it's a smart thing for him to go to a market where it's a very good team, a lot of young talent, whether Bryce Harper comes back or not, um, and stay in the National League. If I'm a pitcher and I'm going to sign a contract that's going to take me through my 30s, I'd much rather pitch in the National League than the American League. Uh, but I also think it tells you that the Nationals may wind up with Bryce Harper, but they're not sitting around waiting to find out what he's going to do. You know, they've already made two deals, one free agent, one trade to get two catchers. Uh, and now a big-time starting pitcher, I think he's going to wind up being the most expensive or the highest contract this free agent period for a lefty starting pitcher. So I think it's a great sign. I think this guy, if you saw him pitch this year, you saw something that would not have happened, Richard, 10 or 15 years ago. He's someone who changed the way he threw to throw less than 50% fastballs. Hmm. And he's done that because of analytics. Analytics have really changed the game, in this case, changing somebody's career. Because back in the day, it's always, well, you have to throw your fastball. Many of your other pitchers work off of that. That's the way he came up, throwing about two-thirds fastballs. Well, he's got such a good slider, he finally realized the numbers were telling him, man, why don't you throw that pitch more often? Nobody's hitting your slider. They're hitting your fastball. And he's a guy now that's under 50% fastball. So this will be the largest contract for any pitcher who has that kind of a breakdown in terms of less than 50% fastballs. Again, unheard of as recently as a decade ago and a little more common in today's game, and he does it as well as anybody. So uh, good for the Nationals. I I think this guy's the real deal. I I love everything about this guy. It was a great sign for him. There's a lot of teams like the Yankees and the Phillies um, who are uh, a little upset right now that they didn't wind (laughs) up with him. They have to go to plan B. By the way, I I love it. I just knocked Twitter, and yet that's where I just found out about this. So this is the love-hate relationship with it. um, and well done to all the multiple baseball people who uh, who are all who are all over this right now. All right, final two from me, um, Tom. You mentioned analytics, and I, I think you. I feel like you were ahead of the curve in terms of being a, for lack of a better word, mainstream writer who was putting analytics or was pretty numerically savvy in um, in their copy. Uh, they're certainly people who are analytics or sabermetric specialists as writers, but you were doing that. I think you were really sort of ahead of the curve in terms of doing that for a, like a real traditional mainstream place 
at SI. Uh, are you just someone numerically oriented? Did you find the numbers of baseball interesting, or did you start reading up on you know sort of the Bill James world and you 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 know you 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 realized its importance rather early? And obviously now today, um, you know the the baseball is really the sport where a lot of these advanced metrics essentially have become the language of the sport. It's not unfamiliar anymore. Well, I like what you just said there about the language of the sport because that really was my inspiration. I mean, yes, I I really enjoy the numbers. I love digging into them, uh, whether it's the history of the game or the sabermetric side of it. Um, but as things began to change, that's the language I was hearing from the people who are making decisions about team building. Hmm. Uh, that's how you know something is it's not a fad, it's not a trend. That there's it's just another form of data, and these people running clubs now and even. You know, going back to Billy Bean or Theo Epstein, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, very smart people ahead of the curve. You know, you put your ear to the ground and this is what you hear. This is how you heard people talking. And, you know, to not engage in that, I think, would be a big mistake. So I realized early on that this is part of the language of the game. And I, I think people who dismiss it or just don't want to get involved with it because it's not the baseball they grew up are really missing a lot because I think – to me, Richard, I think this is my 37th, 38th year covering Major League Baseball. And I think the game has changed more in the last five years than it did in the first 30-plus years that I covered wow. baseball. And analytics are a big part of that. Um, the game is played in a very different way, you know, whether it shifts, whether it's the way bullpens are used, the way starting pitchers are developed. It's changed very fast, and analytics have done that. And I think for the people... And a lot of this goes to former players because this wasn't the game they played. And it's easy to be dismissive of something that, you know, you weren't a part of. I think they really miss out on where the game is played now. I mean, I never complain. It's not better or worse. Um, it's just different. And, and this is what we have now. And I, I still love the game. It's, I don't think it's any worse because, you know, the pitchers are not throwing 250 innings. I just think it's interesting to me. And it's going to continue along these lines. Now, baseball, as you know, Richard, has some challenges that make the game more uh, entertainment friendly, if you will. The hardcore fan is going to follow the game no matter what, but to the casual fan, I think some changes need to be made. Um, but yeah, I think the language of the game is a good way to put it. Is it's always been in numbers. We just have better numbers now. Hmm. Last one for me, Tom, and that is, um, you know, our uh, our former colleague Peter King um, had opportunities to just do television and not to write. Um, you know, Rick Riley, sort of, you know, uh, who was at Sports Illustrated for a while, uh, switched primarily to television. I'm sure we have had a lot of colleagues who um, have been offered sort of full-time TV roles to walk away from writing. And you're in a great position where I'm sure Fox and MLB Network um, would, you know, give you sort of what you wanted in terms of a schedule if that's what you wanted to focus on. So um, for those of us who want to see you continue to write um, – where do, where do you stand with that in terms of your passion for writing, you wanting to write as long as you can? Is that is it your hope that for as long as you are in this profession, writing will be a part of that? Or can you see a day where you morphed more to the, uh, to the television side full time? Well, I think writing will always be a part of, of what I do because I just enjoy it so much. I mean, it's I will tell you this, it's, it's not easy. The writing, the business of writing is really hard. To do it well, it, it's really hard work, and you really have to 
um, be dedicated to that. And that can be hard sometimes when you're doing more TV work. But, you know, for instance, I did a story this year on the 78 Yankees, the race with the Red Sox and how the newspaper strike in New York kind of affected the Yankees season and the, the, uh, the personalities that kind of, kind of clash between the players and the, and the writers. I really enjoyed digging into a story like that, that again, that's a story that maybe people are slightly familiar with. Certainly the 78 season they're very familiar with, but to take a story angle that, you know, is a little bit different and flesh it out and make people say, Hey, I didn't know that. You know, that's pretty cool to do and to do that with some craft and, and some time uh, putting it together. I still enjoy that process. So it's hard to me for me to imagine that I wouldn't do that at all. Now, what that balance is going forward, I mean, who knows? I mean, you know better than anybody, Richard, the, the media world changes so quickly now that I don't know what's around the next corner. So um, the fact that I can do some different things is, is nice, uh, but the balance of that, I think, may, may always kind of go back and forth depending on what the opportunities are. Tom Verducci is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and a longtime one. He is also a analyst for MLB Network and an analyst, game analyst, as well as a field reporter for Fox Sports' coverage of Major League Baseball. You obviously see Tom and Ken Rosenthal every year in the playoffs in the World Series. Uh, Tom, um, you've always been a great uh, colleague to me. I've told the story many times that uh, I wrote two uh, letters when I was 19. One was to a Buffalo News columnist who lived less than 10 miles where I did. One was to Tom Verducci. Tom Verducci is the one who sent me back a two-page handwritten note in blue ink, Tom, Incredible penmanship, too, <laughs> where uh, you were kind enough to uh, look at a 19-year-old's work and to give me some really, really nice words. That's the kind of stuff people honestly never forget when they are young. So, uh, Tom, I only wish you uh, nothing but the best of success, and I'll keep reading you at Sports Illustrated and watching you on these networks. And uh, thanks so much for being here today on the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, my pleasure, Richard. Keep up the great work. Thanks again. Okay, back in the studio, my thanks to Tom Berducci for a great conversation. And like I said on the podcast, um, Tom did write me a letter when I was 19 years old. Two-page letter. I think it's still at my mom's house somewhere. Uh, yeah, me asking one of those, hey, what is it? what can I do to be a great sports writer? And, uh, you know, he took my clip seriously and wrote me back. And uh, that is something you never forget. Uh, totally uh, an unbelievable thing for him to do when he was essentially the top of his profession at that time. So my thanks to Tom Berducci, previous podcast guests, if you want to go back and look at the sports media podcast, and please leave us a review and a rating if you like this stuff. The last one was a sports media roundtable with John Orand and Chad Finn. We discussed the Monday Night Football booth in pretty detailed conversation, as well as the deification of college football coaches on air. Rebecca Lobo and LaChina Robinson spoke about uh, women's basketball coverage in this country and where it can improve and where it is now. Kirk Minahan on um, his new job, the Boston Sports Talk radio host, as well as uh, discussing mental health publicly. Troy Aikman, Kate Abdow, Rachel Nichols, Candace Parker, Jamel Hill, Chris Haynes, Renee Young. Those are some of the uh, last couple of guests that we've had. And again, if you like this contact, please uh, leave us a review and a rating, and that's how it will stay. For my producer, Lou Pellegrino, for Cadence 13, this is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.